This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In one of our more flamboyant arboreal seasons of the year, when our charismatic woody megaflora of the northern hemisphere, the trees, are coloring up, chlorophylling down, and turning over their foliage biomass for the winter ahead. This week, we're exploring the scale and meaning and teaching of trees. We're in conversation with William Friedman, the eighth director of Harvard University's Arnold Arboretum. Originally designed by Frederick Law Olmsted and now located in both Jamaica Plain and Roslindale, Massachusetts, this free and open to the public living, convening, and classroom of trees is celebrating its 150th anniversary. Ned, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you at this exact time, not only in our seasonal year, but in the life of the planet as well. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Well, thank you. I'm so pleased to be uh, here speaking with you. Uh, this is our 150th anniversary, the founding of the first public arboretum in North America. So there's lots to celebrate in conversation today. You are many things in this world, as well as being the director, the eighth director of the Arnold Arboretum. And I have introduced you in a very basic way with those sort of big titles that we get assigned in the world. I would love to have you introduce us just a little bit more, especially describing perhaps your relationship with plants in your life right now. Sure. So we have to go back to a time before I was the director of the Arnold Arboretum. I'm also a regular old professor. So uh, I've been teaching and doing research all my adult life, uh, fell in love with plants in college with an amazing botany professor. I went to Oberlin College and uh, my professor, David Benzing, uh, in his hands, I just was uh, able to enter this world that just connected immediately with me and my own sense of of how I wanted to interact with nature. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by plants, uh, trying to understand their evolution. I'm an evolutionary biologist. And then uh, sort of completely unexpectedly, <laughs> I was asked to take a look at this position at the Arnold Arboretum as, as director. And I mean, it's ridiculous that I'm here, but here I am. And uh, so I continue to still teach and do research. But um, I've always been really since early days of college, I've just been very uh, connected with plants, off through the microscope. I, I love plant structure, and I love to think about how plant structure has changed over the last, oh, 450 or so million years, uh, beginning of land plants 475 million years ago. And, um, and then when I got this opportunity, it struck me I'd be spending the rest of my life or career surrounded by plants in an arboretum, in a botanical garden, uh, with perhaps the most important thing I, I, I thought uh, I could do, which is to help connect more people uh, to plants in their lives. And when I say more, we get millions of visitors here. So quite a few. And I love the description of the Arnold Arboretum on uh, the website, which is a museum of trees teaching people about plants. And um, that summarizes it really beautifully. For those people who might not be familiar with the idea of an evolutionary biologist, share a little bit about what that means and what specifically you are doing in biology 
in that role. And I think at Harvard, you are also a professor, not only of evolutionary biology, but of organismic biology. Sort of unpack those descriptions for us, because I think they're going to become important in how we look at the importance of the Arboretum in this moment of our our world. Uh, Absolutely. There is a direct connection. So, um, People always say, what in the world is an organismic biologist? (laughs) You don't hear that term. It's like, what the heck does that mean? And I'm in the department on the faculty of the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology. So it must mean something to a few of us. But the way I, I try to explain it is to think of the unit of biology that I'm interested in. And if you're uh, so let's say you're an environmental biologist, ecosystems, and and uh, you're worried about climate change. You may be thinking about millions and millions and billions of organisms at one time interacting in various ecosystems, and you just have the sort of the scale of it is at the ecology of large numbers of things interacting. And you can think about the the other end of the spectrum that we're pretty familiar with, which is at the genomic end of the spectrum of biology, which is the world we live in, which is unraveling the code in nucleic acids to understand <laughs> things that we could never have dreamed possible uh, even a decade or two ago. And so I look at those as extremes. And in between is this unit of biology, which is the single organism looked at and interrogated uh, to understand how it starts as a zygote and develops into an oak tree. Um, and what I tell people is, actually, we're all kind of innately organismic biologists because our unit of, of, of perception of ourselves is as this organism. So here are two of us talking, and um, and you have uh, – We're all members of the same species, (laughs) yet we're not interchangeable. We all have our own unique aspects of of, of our own history. And that's that's sort of how I I entangle myself with the biological world. And that happens very much here at the Arnold Arboretum. I love visiting certain individual trees year after year, watching them grow, seeing them through the seasons. So so in a way, I was sort of maybe... um, wired for whatever reasons to love organisms and, and thinking about organisms and thinking about them, you know, as they live their lives, but also as, as they're rooted in time. So in my case, I'm really interested in something I think a lot of people who love botanical gardens would, would agree is a pretty wonderful event, which was the origin of flowering plants. Imagine the world if we didn't have any flowering plants. Um, And that's a world that was actually around about 140 million years ago. We didn't have any flowering plants. So a botanical garden 140 million years ago would have had lovely conifers, lovely ferns. Uh, We could have certainly celebrated the mosses and the liverworts and the hornworts, but you wouldn't have had a single orchid. You wouldn't have had a, a single water lily. And the question of where flowering plants came from and how they got their biology, which is really unique and distinctive, has been the topic of my research really for most of my you know, academic life. And uh, I'm trying to understand how we got from before flowering plants to launching into flowering plants and how they began to diversify. It's a, a topic that actually Darwin referred to uh, as an abominable mystery. Right, right, um, right. A great term. It is. A, it's probably the most quoted uh, sort of phrase of Darwin uh, out there, actually. Well, and I think that um, context of your work and your interest and that scale, um, a a word that you use there is uh, so interesting and compelling and important for us to remember 
to help with our own perspective in these moments um, and at this time, because to be the first Arboretum in North America of a an academic kind with a specific uh, criteria for, for admission for what you're doing, and to be 150 years old sounds like a great birthday. Uh, but you talk to one of our oaks or one of our redwoods, and you're just really getting started. So that's great, right? That's actually amazingly true. The yeah. indenture that uh, Harvard originally, the Arboretum was land given to Harvard coupled with money from our namesake, James Arnold, who was a whaling uh, merchant in New Bedford, wanted to build an Arboretum. Um, this you know, combination uh, came together and when the first director was hired, uh, Charles Sprague Sargent, as you mentioned, the job doesn't turn over very often. He realized he could never afford to build something of this grandest scale. He partnered up immediately with Frederick Law Olmsted. So let's get the best. Let's get someone who is visionary. And that vision was astonishing. And then they figured out, oh, we can't afford to pay for it. So they convinced Harvard to do something that's rather unusual. They convinced Harvard to give something rather valuable away. And the land 10 years into our life was given to the city of Boston at no cost. And then, of course, the deal was it would be incorporated into the park system, which is very much a part of our founding value that we want the world to visit this museum of trees, not just scientists. And an indenture was signed for 1,000 years between the city and Harvard, renewable once. So we are like that Redwood. We have a life scale time span that is on the same order. It, it's it's just, So we are, you are absolutely right. We are in our infancy. And what's great about that is it, um, it puts into perspective what we're planning for and where we are planning from, which is much longer than that 150 years, I think. And you talk about a little, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of our, our founding principles. And I am very taken with the, the sort of goals and stated missions of this 150th anniversary. And it's dedication to what is termed renewing our founding public promise of environmental equity in the landscape and number two combating climate change and extinction so you know as a gardener this is incredibly important to me and all of the other gardeners out there and i think it also gets to the heart of why should we care about what could be dismissed i would i would say from from a larger world perspective as an a sort of elitist academic institution that is uh and has very colonial uh and um extractive roots in some ways uh why it is so important that we stick in here and uh we follow your lead in making this as open and as welcoming and as accessible as we possibly can going forward for exactly what you also mentioned, which was interrogating the collection and the leadership of its collection and interpreting it for this future planning. Can you talk more about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, they're, so we're only the latest uh, people, again, as an evolutionary biologist, there are so, you, it is so important to know all of the history, not just the recent history. 
And so it's actually quite important for us to situate ourselves and know that there are many people who who transited this land before us, who used this land, who probably found it to be a beautiful place to be. Uh, and, and we also have to situate ourselves uh, in history in another way uh, that Harvard has been uh, struggling, uh, but I think quite successfully to come to terms with, which is the legacy of slavery at Harvard. And uh, the president uh, had a faculty uh, commission that uh, was appointed to to write a very extensive document. And uh, as you know, uh, like all old universities and old money, uh, there is often a rather unsavory aspect to how the money was obtained. And that actually also applies to the Arnold Arboretum. The land that we were given, uh, interestingly, was from one of the wealthiest men uh, in uh, New England, certainly, uh, it was promised to Harvard in 1842. Um, and um, his name was Bussey, and he also wanted to open his lands in a very generous way for the public to use. He acquired all kinds of land. Uh, and, and so, you know, in the old narrative, he was a nice person who made his money as a merchant. But in fact, it, it was a merchant uh, that sent uh, sort of unfinished basic goods uh, to the South and to the Caribbean. Uh, for the industries that, or the agricultural uh, industries that grew cotton, uh, grew sh sugar, uh, and tobacco, and those then moved on this, those ships moved to uh, uh, to Europe and returned with finished goods. And almost the, about four years before all this land or most of the land was acquired, uh, that's when uh, you see he, he sort of got out of that business. But that was the wealth. That was created. So, so for me as an evolutionary biologist, and history just has to be part of everything. So there's that history. There's the James Arnold family was a Quaker. Uh, his wife was a Quaker in New Bedford, uh, very much an, an abolitionist. Um, so you have all of these things. We 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 are working to again interrogate, uh, make sure that they're seen and understood. This is cultivating place. William Friedman, known as Ned, is the eighth director of Harvard University's Arnold Arboretum, celebrating its 150th anniversary. We'll be right back after a break for more about the past and future of the Arnold Arboretum. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So in our conversation, Ned says this, trees speak of time. And I know exactly what he's talking about, and I'm sure you do too. They are large, long-lived presence in our lives. And I got to thinking that in this way, the trees in our lives also highlight how in many ways, our attention to trees speak of our own time, how we invest our time, what we value with our time, and therefore our own intentions, stated or unstated, seen or unseen, over time. As we move into this next season, let our own personal tree time dialogues be a blessing to the many in these times. I'm Jennifer Jewell, 
This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Dr. William Friedman, known as Ned. Ned is the eighth director of the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard University, a 281-acre museum of trees teaching the world about plants. As we finished the first part of our conversation, Ned had just shared some of the colonial beginnings of the Arboretum, for better and worse, and how the Arboretum is cultivating many layers of needed progress environmentally and socially. As we come back, he shares more about one of the brightest and most progressive of the founding principles of the Arboretum, open access to all. This ideal firmly grounds and helps guide the Arboretum's work moving forward, especially as a classroom for the world. From the very beginning, Harvard made the decision that this Museum of Trees should be open and free to everyone in the world. Well done, Harvard. Yeah, so big points for Harvard there and for the people who had that vision. And um, we're the only cultural institution in Boston that is free. So, you know, it's an amazing thing to think about, uh, you know, the vision of the first director and of, of, of a Charles Sprague Sargent and of Frederick Law Olmsted. And there were other figures involved in this who wanted something truly accessible. It's the antithesis of elitism. It's actually a fundamental exercise in democracy. It is the idea, and it's still true today, that one walks the grounds and one sees people. You may not know them, but you you may nod your head. You may say good morning. You acknowledge that you live in a broader context than just your own home and your friends and your, your family. So the power of this kind of a place, especially in this very, uh, I'd say, fragmented uh, time that we live in uh, with polarization and, 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 of course, with COVID, with the tremendous isolation that's come with it. This space really, I think you, you've got it right on that. It's as modern and as thoroughly important as it's ever been. But the roots of these uh, concepts of, of, of open access, of, of, of being a space of democracy, uh, go all the way back to our beginning. And I, I, I think, again, it's so important to know how we were founded and to understand what the ideals were uh, now they're updated. We, you know, environmental justice wasn't a term in, in the 1870s, um, but Olmsted would have talked about a mixing of classes, and 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 it would have been essentially the same context. So we think about these things, and in fact, uh, just because we're open and free does not mean we are equally accessible, or that people feel the same way in terms of privilege. And so this is something we're working terribly hard on uh, here at the Arnold Arboretum. You know, we are a public park, so we have partners in the city who can help with this and, and who do. And we are also a university. I can bring colleagues from the School of Public Health uh, to think about these, these challenges. And there's a whole group there in environmental health at Harvard. Uh, and they study this, green spaces and, and environmental uh, uh, inequities and, and, and all of this. So so. I have actually, in some ways, the best of both worlds. I can call upon expert academics around social policies and city governance, and I can turn to the city and have conversations with them. And it's very much uh, on my plate and on all of our plates uh, uh, here at the Arnold Arboretum. I love all that context. And I know it might seem a little tangential to um, the topic we really want to get to, which is the, the beauty of the collection as it now stands. But I think those are important pieces of background. Remind people, what is an Arboretum? And then tell us about the first founding principles when it was founded in 1872 with this wonderful constellation of people coming together. 
Well, so I, I would say an, ar an arboretum is really a variety of botanical garden uh, in which woody plants are the primary holding collections. But I would be more specific about the Arnold Arboretum, and I would say my definition, one that I've used for years, is trees with provenance in a designed landscape. <laughs> if I can take a little bit of minute Please or two do. to unpack yes. it, yeah. I, I think it, it will it will show you a little bit about what lies behind this incredible collection. So design landscape is pretty straightforward. This is not a natural woodland. There's nothing natural about it. It may be naturalistic in some areas, but this is a thoroughly constructed site. Um, it was probably pounded earth with sheep on it 200 years ago with very few trees being cleared. And the early photographs of the Arnold Arboretum show very few trees. It, now you would never guess that it, as they tower over us. So the design is incredibly important for us. And, and that's where Olmsted's genius comes in. Um, if you get it right, if you know how to turn a, a bend, if you know how to create a view shed uh, where you're, you're, you're essentially your spirits are lifted in unique ways as you stare into one of our collections, um, then Olmsted's done his work. And, and we are pristine in the sense that this is as he designed it. We have not changed anything. The open areas are still open. The collections were, were grouped taxonomically. You'll find the conifers where he and Sargent negotiated that space. You'll find the ginkgos where they were supposed to be and the magnolias in another place. Uh, and this has a, a really dramatic effect. Again, it's very much like an art museum. You're moving between galleries, and each gallery has a concentration of a certain type of art. And our galleries are the maple gallery, and the oak gallery, and the, the hop hornbeam gallery. And um, and what you know, and if you've been to the Arnold Arboretum in your Harvard days, um, you will recall that standing under these towering cathedral-like uh, oaks is very different than the feeling you get uh, standing under our hickories or standing in the conifers. And that's that's what makes us really like any other museum, which has the concentration of, of kinds of objects uh, together for you to actually be able to compare. Um, so there's something amazing about having the world's finest maple collection. We have 63 species of maple trees here. Imagine walking into that in the fall and comparing leaf colors or you name it, beyond being joyful uh, and just lifting, you're, you know, you're just beyond belief. You're, you're, you're just amazed. Um, you also have the chance to learn just by observing. Now, the, the, the uh, plants with provenance is, is really the other half of the story. And, and this is, again, like art museums. Each, you know, each object on, on a museum wall it's it, curators have to know where it came from, who painted it or who sculpted it. You have ex extremely precise knowledge of individual held items. Well, our objects are living objects and they're trees, shrubs, and lianas, woody vines. And each one has provenance. Each one of our trees has a tag on it. You can go in our online database. We know where it came from, where it was collected, when it was collected who collected it. We know when it passed through our propagation greenhouses as a seed and was planted. And then, you know, it was probably cold stratified over the you know winter and then germinated in the spring. We know it took three or four or five years before it was of size. Then someone dug a hole. We picked a spot. Um, that's provenance. In other words, um, I can show you a picture of a sand pear that came uh, here in 1908 uh, from China, west of uh, of Yichang in Hubei. 
But you might say, well, I could go and buy a sand pear, you know, at a, at a nursery. And it, they would look the same in flower, but they're not. That sand pear doesn't have any provenance. It, it may have been produced at a large horticultural operation. Um, but that tree I'm talking about, I have pictures of it. We have a knowledge of it. It's a single, it comes back to that word, organism with its own standing. And that changes everything. For us, plant records, and we have a whole floor of people who do plant records here. We have a keeper of the living collections. We have a manager of plant records. We have a whole team of people who are checking on each of our plants, as well as the horticulturalists and, and arborists who take care of them. But each plant here is an individuated piece of the living world. Uh, and that changes everything when I'm out in the collections. And I think it's quite unique. Not all botanical gardens have provenance with, you know, especially with herbaceous material, it's a little trickier. But with woody plants, it's it's possible to do this. And um, I think it makes the Arnold quite a wonderful place to to interact with individual trees. Yeah. One of the important things as you're speaking about this idea of provenance, and it is important at an emotional level uh, in terms of knowing where a being that you love or admire has come from and how they got to where they are. But it is also important to note that these aren't just objects. These are living beings, organisms, as we have already been discussing, and the way they grow and relate and and don't grow or, or don't relate uh, become such important information for us to, to understand more and more. I mean, and you think about what the science of trees, uh, let alone plants, has um, come to recognize just in the last 10 years or, or 20 years, let alone the last 150. And this is the information that will hopefully allow us to be wiser and strategic and kinder even as we move forward in our world with these beings as opposed to just objects. And I'm not at all dismissing the value of a, an art object. I think I can stop talking about that now. Um, I'm getting <laughs> myself into a tangle, but you see my no, point. No, I, but, I, but your point is a really wonderful one about the, our, our collection. I say it's a working collection. We have 80 or 90 different research projects from people right. all around the world working. A lot of it, most of it now is on climate change and global change, uh, which is much more than climate change. Global change is insects and diseases that move around the world and affect our ecosystems and destroy. I mean, we lost all our ashes in, in New England. They're going right. away. Right. Um, we have emerald ash borer here in, in Boston. But you can study all of these things with our trees. And that's exactly what people do. People are they're looking at phenology. They're using our trees year after year to see what the effects of, of climate change or drought are on when things leaf out or flower or, you know, when things get sort of uh, strangely uh, disturbed by the fact that we now have these more extreme freeze thaws cycles in the spring. And it's a little dangerous to wake up if you're going to get a hard freeze because you've been pushed early because of the warm weather. So we have all kinds of research teams, a lot of what we would call uh, plant physiology, which is how plants respond physiologically to the world. Uh, Ecophysiology is done with our very trees. They're put to work. They're put to the task. Uh, and the beauty is because it's a controlled environment, for example, you could take the maple collection. You could look at maples from around the world that are, you can know how related they are to each other. And you can see, do they all respond the same way to, to a common garden environment or do they respond differently? Um, and you know, all of this with, I'm in a research building that was opened in 
my first year I got here, um, filled with young scientists. Uh, so part of our job is to use these collections uh, to train and actually you know, put the next generation out there uh, with the direct task coming back to what's on our plate. We're, we're fighting and combating extinction. How are we going to do that? We need to have the best minds uh, who are given the opportunity through our fellowships and through all kinds of opportunities here to train with people, to learn to use these collections, and then to go out in the world and make a difference. It's yeah. really important. Yeah. Really important. So what are the founding principles of the Arboretum? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Well, uh, I would say, first and foremost, it was begun uh, clearly as a scientific institution. Uh, forestry was going to be important. Sargent wanted, you know, we're still in a period where, you know, for the Western world, uh, we don't know a lot of the diversity necessarily around the world. So, uh, for example, in Asia. So uh, um, there was an interest in knowing more about trees, studying them, classifying them, uh, finding species that were uh, not known again to the you know uh, again they were known <laughs> where they grew but they weren't necessarily known uh, here in America or or in the Western world so we were founded as a scientific institution that means we were here to train students we were here to do research and we were just a regular part of Harvard as we still are uh, doing the same kinds of things that other parts of Harvard do but what I think is so interesting is once Sargent and Olmsted really begin to collaborate. The whole notion that Harvard's Museum of Trees should be open to the world becomes such a political statement. It is, you know, people will say but botanical gardens aren't political. I, I disagree. I mean, I can't think of anything more political than centering and foregrounding plants um, and to make it free and accessible every day so that anyone can come. You know, we have children's programs with Head Start. We have children's programs uh, with Boston Public School children. Uh, we have all kinds of, of, of ways of introducing urban children who often don't have the opportunity to be in, immersed in nature to relationships with nature. And so this is in very, you know, in a very, very important way. I think that that direction was set early on when the deal was struck that we were going to be a part of the park system which is weird because I'm, I don't work for the park system or the city. Um, it, we're a co-production. And somehow we just have to you know, work our way forward and find common ground, which we do. I mean, we are devoted to that aspect of it. So I would say there really are two things going on at the beginning. The creation of a, of a serious part of Harvard to study plants. And there are other parts. There's the Harvard Forest, which is actually a natural ecosystem in Western Massachusetts. Uh, we have the Harvard University Herbaria, which is a, a, an incredibly large collection of pressed plants that document biodiversity around the, the world. Um, so, you know, it's a wonderful place to be if you're a plant person. But really, from the very outset, we were uh, we were charged with with the science and understanding of biodiversity, plant biodiversity, and with uh, making sure that anyone who visited had the opportunity to be in one of the finest designed uh, botanical gardens in the world with a world-class collection of plants, second to none. I love the renewal of commitment to that and the also, I think, um, deep interrogation of what that means and how to actually manifest that most um, effectively and authentically to to everyone that that idea of welcome in this space which is also a collaboration with the city of boston and with jamaica plain the neighborhood slash city in which it actually has evolved to sit 
And then in 1890s, another about a quarter of our land, maybe a little less, uh, uh, was added uh, to the indenture. It was designed by the Olmsted brothers, uh, the, the sons, and um, that's in Roslindale. And I remember that was the first lesson I got when I got here. They said, never forget to say Roslindale and Jamaica Plain. I'm, I'm sitting in Roslindale right now, and, and many of my colleagues are in another building in Jamaica Plain. <laughs> This is Cultivating Place. William Friedman is the eighth director of Harvard University's beloved Arnold Arboretum. Ned is also an evolutionary and organismic biologist at Harvard, and he's sharing with us today more about the science and nature of the Arboretum, a free and open to the public living, convening, and classroom of trees, celebrating its 150th anniversary. We'll be right back after a break for more about the past and the future of the Arnold Arboretum. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. I wanted to share this quote from my conversation with Ned. It's coming up in the conversation, but I want you to hear it in advance so that when it comes around, you really hear it there and it seeds inside you appropriately. Quote, Arborita and a majority of botanical gardens in general occupy this incredibly important place for grounding plants, helping us as a community, as a country, as a set of countries around the world to be more respectful of plants. And if we can be more respectful of plants, maybe we can be more respectful of the planet." End quote. For grounding plants, think about that. Putting them in the foreground of our sight, of our vision, of our decision-making. And from there, we are more knowledgeable. And from there, we are more respectful. And from there, if we're more respectful of the plants and the planet, maybe we can be respectful of one another in all of our growing ways. I like this idea. May plants always be in your foreground, my friends. They have so much to teach us. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Ned Friedman, the eighth director of Harvard University's Arnold Arboretum. As we come back, Ned shares much more about the vast collection of 2,100 species living together, learning together, and teaching us all at the Arnold Arboretum. So we always want to sort of delight people with things you might not ever expect to see in, in the climate of Boston. But the 2100 species, uh, as I say, we're trying to collect them to make sure that people can do various types of research. We're trying to collect them because we want to introduce people who visit here to things they've never seen before. And, and again, as a botanical garden, the sheer joy of seeing something in flower, like the Franklin tree, which is a late summer, early fall bloomer, it's covered with flowers right now, hundreds of them. The bees are rolling around in the pollen. Uh, it's a beautiful sight. And so 
you know, we, we continue to add new accessions and uh, we subtract some too. Uh, a few weeks ago, one of our uh, pine white pines was struck directly by lightning and burst into flames, which is was pretty dramatic. The fire department had to come and put it out. And uh, so that's being deaccessioned uh, as, as a dead organism this fall. Um, but we, what we do with these collections, and we think very hard, is we, we're trying to obviously promote the science. We're obviously trying to promote conservation principles, bringing material, uh, you know, much more so than would have been the case, for example, 100 years ago. Uh, we're trying also, as much as our uh, sergeant and others would have originally, we're trying to delight the visiting public uh, to a garden. I mean, the joy of being in a garden uh, really comes from the plants confronting uh, you, slowing you, you know, taking you out of your day, putting pause on sort of all the accelerated thoughts that are going through your head. And with the landscape that Olmsted designed, uh, it's sort of a, it, this being here is just miraculous at what it does. And I live two blocks from here. I'm here all the time. Even when I'm not working, I'm here. My wife's a botany professor. So, you know, what do we do? Well, we hang around plants a lot. And what you will find is that we're, you know, today the context of this, you know, this garden of trees and, and woody plants uh, is very different than it was 140 or 50 years ago. I think that's what's great about a, a visionary sort of approach to something. Some things become very rapidly dated. You can think of institutions of the 19th century that now would seem quaint. You would never, you know, I, you know, never imagine that that would be something you'd be hanging around with in, in a modern context. But I would argue the Arnold Arboretum and uh, Arboreta and Botanical Gardens in general uh, occupy an incredibly important place in foregrounding plants and helping us as a as a community, uh, as as a as a country, as a you know set of countries around the world, to be more respectful of plants. And if you can be more respectful of plants, maybe we can be more respectful of the planet. Even if someone's just jogging through. Um, they sometimes slow down and they, they, I hope that they pause. We do it with our public programming and they take in something beautiful and that changes. Them. And that's our plants doing that work and our landscape. Um, and as I say, you know, we don't, we have, since we don't charge admission, we don't have an entrance you come through. We have 14 different entrances, basically. It's a very porous perimeter and we never knew who, you know, we don't, you know, you, if you have someone giving you $20 on the way in, you keep track of that. But we, we don't. We want as many people to come. But just as the pandemic began, uh, we put one counter on one of our entrances, you know, a little beam that you, you, you cross and it counts you. And the numbers are astonishing. We started this up, I think, the last day of March in 2020, just as things were closing down. And we're approaching 2 million entries in that one of our 14 entrances in two and a half years. So, you know, you come back and you say, let's multiply that and say maybe three, four million people or visits a, a year. If we do it right, and especially in these times where, you know, democracy feels fragile uh, and we can join people into seeing and acknowledging each other as members of communities that belong together, even if you don't know each other. If we can get people to, to, to just think about the, the beauty of the natural world, if we can get people in the labs to study how we have to uh, combat or at least understand what's going to happen so we can communicate the dire sort of uh, strictures we're under at this point, um, we're doing our job. And I would say that is a 21st century operation, as modern 
in its conception as it ever could have been uh, in 1872. There's something about the fact that it is trees you are working with, uh, for, for, for the most part, trees and shrubs, the, the woody plants, that these are the, the charismatic megaflora of our planet. They are um, the backbone. They are the, you know, the mothers, as it were, of, of plant communities around the world and ecosystems around the world. When you think about the the scale and the time of trees and the the collections there at the Arnold Arboretum, and you think about how the Arnold Arboretum isn't just one arboretum, I mean, it is one, but it is also interconnected and has been ever since Sargent started it and uh, Olmsted was part of it. I mean, I think there's a seed from the Dawn Redwood that's there in the Arboretum here at California State University, Chico and Bidwell's Arboretum. There's another one that I've seen um, in the Arboretum at Poly Hill. And so they have been, there has been this network of plant people and tree people and arboreta sharing information and sharing actual plant uh, propagules across, you know, ocean liners and 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 mail on donkeys and however they did it at that point and and we are still doing that today talk about the importance of that sharing of knowledge and research and and conundrums especially in the face of things like you know across the last 100 years the the chestnuts the elms the ashes and you know the spotted lanternfly that's just lighting up our media right now why is it important that you are in constant conversation around the globe with what you're doing, Ned? That's a great question. And one of the wonderful things about Arboreta, and I think botanical gardens in general, is we all feel very much that we are part of a larger community of people who have devoted their lives and passions to, uh, again, to plants and to sharing them with the world. And public gardens, you know, starts with the idea that we're sharing with the public. But that Dawn Redwood, we uh, Dawn Redwood was thought to be extinct, uh, only known from the fossil record in the 1940s. Uh, it was discovered living in Hubei, and it was, in fact, an, a Chinese uh, forester trained at the Arnold Arboretum, uh, who was in China, who actually described the living species. And then we got the first seed to leave China. Um, and we didn't just keep it to ourselves. We shared it with all kinds of gardens around the world. I was in a garden uh, in Japan where they pointed me at a dawn redwood that came from, obviously, China. The seed came to Boston. And then our seed went back to Japan, the other right. direction. Um, and I think that's a, it's, it's a really important point. When we go on our expeditions now, and this would be true of other gardens uh, in Arboreta, um, we often bring back more than we can, you know, actually use ourselves or, you know, we, and, and so one of the best conservation practices we can do is to spread that seed around so that if we lose something, your uh, garden uh, has it and it's backed up. It's essentially a way of doing good conservation work. Uh, through a network of gardens. So, you know, we're constantly uh, working uh, with gardens uh, uh, around the world. Uh, and that's just, you know, the way we, I think all gardens like to interact, to share our material, to share our knowledge around propagation and all kinds of things. And a lot of our expeditions actually are not, I mean, we don't just go off by ourselves. 
when we go to China, for example, we're going with our good friends from Beijing Botanic Garden, or we're going from our good friends from the uh, Botanical Institute in Chengdu, or we're going we're going with our our our, our fellow plant lovers who are the local experts and the, and the truly, and then we invite them over here, and they bring North American material back to their gardens. So it's one of the great joys of this this world. Uh, um, we're not competing with each other. We're we're really ultimately rooting for everyone to be successful because uh, there can't ever be enough botanical gardens. No, or trees, right? Or, or trees. There's something mesmerizing about the size of trees. There's also something about how you measure lifetimes in a tree. Mm -hmm. You talk about families that may live in the same home and you you think about the, the generations that, that, that played under a tree. So you have this, this, this incredible aspect that trees talk about time. And and it's almost inescapable, uh, and and human lives are are measured against trees, and and in fact, you know, I'm, I teach a freshman seminar uh, here at Harvard called Tree, and um, it's for you know first year students. It's not meant to be a course about the science of trees, but we're reading literature, we're reading poetry, we're we're thinking about how plant you know trees have moved over eons. You know, we read Richard Powers. We read some of the, you know, some of his work uh, uh, from Overstory. But we're trying to sort of again, and it comes back to interrogating it here. Um, it's not just scientists who are interrogating these trees. It's artists. Um, we do collaborative programming with the Harvard Museums of Art. Um, we work with theater groups uh, in Boston who use our trees as incredibly powerful stage settings. Um, we work with. Uh, uh, all kinds of, uh, of of creative people. In fact, in our visitor center, every two months we rotate in a new art exhibit, and it's almost always around our trees. Uh, the current one is 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 really around, uh, I think, the woven fabrics and, and 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 textiles and tree rings, and it's 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 magnificent to look at. So so all of this is on offer. My job, you know, in a really simple way, is to get every human being who can think and wants to think about this world of tree biodiversity to come here and, and ponder it in any way that they want. Philosophize, you know, uh, write poetry, take a picture, you name it. When you think about the the next 150 years, you, you've been there now for, for 12 years. You came there by way of 15 years in Colorado and before that in um at UC Berkeley for some of your graduate work from Oberlin before that, you cast your mind forward 150 years there at the Arnold Arboretum. What are your greatest hopes, Ned? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. We're we're working. I mean, our 150th year was sort of it was it was a point where the entire staff here has been asking those kinds of questions. Where do we want to be in 150 years? And how do we ensure that we are there? And for me, in 150 years, the success will be the Olmsted landscape is intact, but it's even better that we've we've confronted some of the uh, complexities of, of environmental justice, and we have reached more people uh, with greater diversity, uh, and we have made them feel welcome. And I don't want to wait 150 years for that. We're working on it now. But if I could look back and say there was a pivot point where we really became significantly conscious. And I think this is what you know the last two years, two and a half years have done. We can talk about COVID. We can talk about the fragility of our democracy. 
and, and we can talk about the, the sort of the, the the fact that we're, we're fragmenting. Uh, you know, we we just don't interact with with other people. Uh, we have our own sort of closed bubbles. Um, for me, the success is that this is still a place where you say good morning to someone you don't know. Um, you you become uh, you're awestruck by beauty of plants. Um, it, it's carrying that mission forward, but it's it's done so that everyone has access and feels that sense of welcome that I think um, not everyone does feel that I as a privileged person do. But but I, I you know I've tried to learn and, and and think hard with my all of my colleagues here at the Arboretum about how we can be more cognizant of of, of the world that is not always just and not always fair. And, and so I, I think we're, we want to see ourselves in 150 years uh, as being an important part of, of justice and uh, justice for plants, for the natural world, and justice for people uh, and for, for everyone to have a good life and to be connected to nature, uh, to be respected and to feel comfortable in this space. And, and for us to continue to do the science. I can't tell you what the science will be in 150 years, but I know that biology is endlessly deep in terms of the questions. There's, it's not that there, you, you can say we're getting closer to the end, we'll know everything. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. I feel after, you know, I'm now, uh, you know, my 60s and, and I, I feel like, my God, I know less than I thought I ever knew about what's out there and what could be known. And, and I think that's a great thing. And, and I think that means that a place like the Arnold Arboretum, which is a scientific institution, uh, in 150 years, I can't even dream of it. But I, I know it will be a healthy place if the science is married to the plants and the public function of, 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 of immersing the world in connecting to the natural world, and particularly to plants, uh, is continuing to be successfully executed. And I think it's just such a beautiful combination of a scientific uh, institution, but also a civic forum there, uh, moderated by the trees, as it should be. And it's one of the great gifts of the garden, let alone uh, an, an open access arboretum or or public park uh, that uh, with with the plants, we, we always have common ground. There is always something we can share and talk about uh, that is a, a universal um, part of our humanity, perhaps one of the, the very best parts of our humanity. And I thank you very much for um, stewarding and growing with the Arnold Arboretum these many years. And I'm very thankful for its presence uh, on our planet and its role in not only that civic engagement, but also uh, the science of, of how we all move uh, within this concept of climate change in the healthiest and most strategic, well-informed kind of way. Well, thank you for, for saying that. It's, it's been a total pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I hope next time you're in Boston, you'll make sure I know that and we'll go for a nice walk in the Arnold Arboretum together. William Friedman is the eighth director of the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard University. The Arboretum is located on 281 acres between Jamaica Plain and Roslindale, Massachusetts. 
Home to more than 2,100 species of trees and woody shrubs, the Arnold Arboretum is celebrating its 150th anniversary as a public resource, free and open year-round, as not only an invaluable living classroom, but a place of great beauty and meaning for all. Speaking of plants and place and the larger garden of trees that characterizes so much of this generous planet Earth, this week let's talk about a lovely and adaptable garden tree, the tupelo. Also known as black gum or sour gum or cotton gum or black tupelo, Nyssa sylvatica is a medium-sized deciduous tree native from southeastern Canada down through the central eastern and southeastern United States into Mexico. From the Nyssa family, Nyssaceae, the Nyssa genus has a handful of species, but it is the Nyssa sylvatica, the tupelo, that is most widely known and most widely cultivated, especially for its outstanding red fall color showing right now. The Nyssa I know here in Northern California, planted in John's garden 30 years ago, perfectly demonstrates some of the most noted attributes of the tree, starting with this bright, rich red fall color in the small, simple leaves. It is slow growing to about 30 feet in cultivation, much bigger in the wild, but stays small, especially without too much water or additional nutrients. And while its early spring blooms are inconspicuous to our eyes, their nectar is of great value to early foraging bees in spring, which for some might bring to mind the famous Tupelo honey, Q. Van Morrison. Finally, the tupelo is tough as anything, being adapted to both marshy conditions and dry, rocky mountain slopes. This extreme adaptability is captured in its name, Nyssa sylvatica. Nyssa meaning water nymph and sylvatica meaning of the woods. While Northern California is way out of its native range, the pretty little 20-foot tree outside the garden gate here is well-behaved and undemanding, watered maybe three times this summer, tops, according to John. A little Tupelo trivia for you. In Vernon, Vermont, in the southeastern aspect of the state, is one of the oldest and northernmost outposts of Tupelo remaining in the United States. There, they call it black gum. According to the Vernon Black Gum Swamp webpage, administered as part of the Vernon Town Forest, the black gum tree is relatively common 400 miles to the south, but in Vermont it is rare, a remnant from the past when the climate was warmer, approximately three to 5,000 years ago. Some of the black gum tree colony in these northern hydrology-regulating swamps of Vernon are purported to be over 400 years old. Nyssa trees tend to be mostly dioecious, meaning they are either mostly pollen-producing, sometimes referred to as male, or mostly fruit-producing, often referred to as female. But most trees also have at least a few 
perfect flowers. Those are flowers with both male and female aspects, allowing for self-pollination and reproduction by seed held in the deep purple droop fruits, just in case a suitable partner is not nearby come spring. For now, in the garden here, the tupelo's bright red leaves are scattered decoratively across the ground at the tree's base, and the small pyramidal winter silhouette of dark wood, beloved by woodworkers, will stand quiet sentry moving on from this week's full moon in Scorpio into the dormant season in front of us, the winter solstice just six weeks away. And yes, the tree is as sweet as Tupelo honey, and yes, I will be humming that for the foreseeable future. Join us again next week when we're in another conversation whose real focus is about gratitude for our relationship with and to plants. We're speaking with Zephyrine Hansen, the founder and human force behind Hampton Farms in Denver, Colorado. Her work and mission is to accelerate food security and community wealth building through investment in agricultural entrepreneurship. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.